The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray. So, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, help us to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. When we hear all of these exhortations this morning from Peter to a suffering people, help us to know that they are your instructions for us on how to trust you, how to give you our lives, and how to live faithfully in a world that is so opposed to you and yet watching. And so we need your grace this morning. Would you give it to us? May your word not return void, and may we see Jesus clearly this morning. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, it's a privilege for me to be here uh, preaching this morning. Uh, Dave is driving home right now with his family from Florida, and they send their greetings and their love. They can't wait to be back here next week. We're continuing our march through the the book of 1 Peter, and we're up to chapter 5, verses 5 to 9 today. Last week, Pastor David uh, so wonderfully handled the first five verses, and he was exhorting us elders last week to shepherd the flock of God that is among us, to do it willingly, not under compulsion, to not domineer, but to do it gently, setting an example. And now this week, Peter continues those exhortations and he turns his attention from the leaders of the church to the congregation. So as we consider these exhortations that we're going to see this morning, and they are beautiful, they're glorious, it's important for us to understand and situate them within the book to see how they're functioning in Peter's thought process. Where are they in the flow What do these exhortations flow from, and what's their purpose in Peter's letter? So let's remind us all where we've been so far in the book and how Peter is setting up this section. So what we've seen time and time again is that Peter's purpose in this letter is to encourage and to exhort a suffering people. And he begins to do this by telling him who they are. So remember chapter 1. They are a people who have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable and kept for them in heaven. Verses 3 to 5 of chapter 1. And there are people that have been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ from their futile ways in which they once walked. Verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. And then chapter 2, as they, as they come to him, Jesus Christ, they're built up into a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. They're set apart as holy to God. Indeed, they're strangers and they're aliens in this world, right? They're, they're not at home here. Their primary citizenship is not in this present creation, but in heaven with Jesus on the throne, ruling and reigning in sovereign care and mercy. That's who they are. That's who these people are that Peter is writing to. They're the happy subjects 
of the heavenly kingdom of our holy Lord awaiting their eternal inheritance. And it's out of that identity that Peter gives his marching orders to these suffering people. He says that when they suffer, not if, not if they suffer, but when they suffer, they're to keep their conduct among the Gentiles pure and admirable, waging war on the passions of their flesh in chapter 2. And they're not to repay evil for evil, but they're to bless those who persecute them with tender hearts. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And they're to serve. They're to serve others, not in their own strength, but in the strength that God supplies, so that in everything, God will get the glory. Chapter 4, verse 11. In other words, in all of their suffering in this world that is so opposed to them and so opposed to their Lord, they're to show who they belong to. They're to show in word and in deed that Jesus is Lord, that he has bought them with the price, and that nothing is ultimately up for grabs in Christ for these people, even in the midst of hardship and suffering and persecution. That's what Peter is telling these people in this book. So we get to chapter 4, verse 19, which is right before our section in chapter 5. So look with me real quick right now, chapter 4, verse 19. And we read, Therefore, in light of all of that, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So that's the call of God to these people. In light of who God is, in light of who they are, live in such a way that screams, I'm trusting in a faithful God. He will meet my needs. He will care for me. He will bring me safely home in the end. Live like that. That's the call of our faithful God. And it's out of that call that Peter is giving these final exhortations in the book. It's kind of a, think of it as like a how-to manual for entrusting your souls to a faithful creator. Entrust your souls to God by doing these things. So that's where, we're our, that's where we are in chapter 5. So last week, when Pastor David so wonderfully exhorted the elders to care for the flock of God, that was Peter's instruction to the elders of how to entrust their souls to God. He was saying in the midst of the hardship of pastoring these people, trust God by gladly serving, by going low in service, by setting an example, by being gentle, always pointing your people to Jesus. And when you do that, elders, as you lead and guide, you are trusting in your faithful creator to give you wisdom to care for you, to lead you, and to give you everything that you need for the task at hand. So elders, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. That's what we saw last week. And now, beginning in verse 5, Peter turns his attention to the congregation. And he tells them how they're to entrust their souls to a faithful God who is only and ever for them in Christ. So how can you entrust your souls to God? Look with me, beginning at the first half, half of chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So we're going to stop right there. Point number one, 
How are the younger among us to entrust their souls to God? They are to submit and be subject to the elders. So you'll notice Peter addresses this particular exhortation to those who are younger in the church. So why does he do that? Why does he single out the the younger here? It's not as though those who are older can just brush this exhortation aside, right? It's not, you older folks, you can just uh, go ahead and ignore everything that the elders say, right? That's That's not the intention. So why then single out those who are younger? I think a couple things are in play here. Number one, in the ancient world, elder was a term that was reserved for those who were older in any given community. And so, within the local church, those belonging to the office of elder were likely to be older themselves, which means this admonition to those who are younger, in contrast to the elders of the church, um, more likely covers more of an age range than we might typically think of for those who are reserved for the younger category. In many ancient cultures, the dividing line between older and younger was somewhere around 40. And in some cases, it could stretch all the way up to the age of 60. So if you're 59 and you're here, congratulations, you're a young person. However, more than even the specific age range of who's young and who's old, I think more importantly, Peter knew what we know about young people. If we're honest, oftentimes young folks can be more likely to be self-reliant, to be independent, to be prone to buck against authority. And I'm including myself in this category. So don't think I'm letting myself off the hook here, even though I'm an elder. We younger folks can be pretty headstrong at times, right? And so Peter is reminding those younger among us that, hey, authority, and especially the authority set up by God within the church, is a good thing. It's a good thing. So submit to your elders. They're entrusting their souls to God by caring for you in a Christ-like way. So younger people, submit to them. Entrust your souls to God by submitting to your elders. Trust God that the elders have been appointed by him, that they have your best in mind, and that they are seeking your good. Trust that there are areas of your life as a younger person where you lack experience and hard-earned wisdom. That's okay. That's not a bad thing. Youth has many advantages, but it also has its limitations. So trust God by trusting the leadership that he has placed over his church. Submit to them with a glad and grateful heart. Now, maybe you're a young person here today and you're kind of bristling at being singled out in that way, right? How dare he talk to me like that? (laughs) How can he say that I'm strong-headed? He can't say that about me. And my caution would be, don't become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Receive the word and examine yourself. Do you have a submissive heart towards the elders? Are there ways that you might be prone to individualism and to self-reliance and dismissing wisdom? Just be honest with yourself and then be honest with God. And when you do, what are you doing? You're entrusting your souls 
to a faithful creator. In other words, submitting to the elders, you are ultimately submitting to the one who cares for you perfectly and will never fail you ever. Now, just a couple words for the, the older folks here. This exhortation to the younger folks must not be held against the young people in the church. So this isn't a free pass to shake your fist at those rebellious youth who dress kind of weird and listen to that weird music and could really use a haircut, right? That's not what this is. Remember Paul's encouragement to Timothy. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are younger. Remember that the hope and prayer for us as a blood-bought family would be that we would, re- we, that we would value members of other generations that we would mutually benefit from one another as people of different ages. So, younger folks, submit to your elders and seek wisdom from those in our church who are seasoned by many years. That would be a wise thing for you to do. Learn from them. Respect them. Watch their way of living. And older folks, Be filled with joy that there are people here who are young. That's a good thing. There are dying churches all over the place with no young people. That's not the case here. Praise God for that. Be encouraged. Be spurred on by their passion and their zeal and come alongside them, seeking to shape them and to mold them in the ways of Jesus Christ. When the young and the old can encourage one another within a church, it paints a beautiful countercultural picture of who the church can be in Christ. That's what we want. And remember, it isn't as though this principle of submission to the elders is only for the young. Indeed, as one commentator pointed out, if those who are more likely to be independent and even at times rebellious towards leaders are called to submit, then it follows that certainly everyone else is expected to submit as well. And that takes humility, right? Submission takes humility. It means that you need to admit to yourself and to God, it's good that there's someone watching out for my soul. It's good that there's someone who's in authority over me, guarding me, because I can't do that on my own. That takes humility to admit that. So that leads us to the next verses. Point number two, clothe yourselves in humility. Look at the second half of uh, verse five, and we'll go through verse seven. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So all of us, not not just us youngins, right, but everyone, clothe yourselves in humility. And not just towards the elders, but towards one another. In all of our interactions as a blood-bought family, we are to put on humility. The call to each one of us is to recognize we are not the center of the church's universe. We're not. It isn't all about us. 
We are not the most important member. It's our call to go low in service towards one another in this blood-bought family. We are to outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 10, 12. We're to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 2 and 3. Indeed, we're to walk in the footsteps of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8 as the ultimate example of what humility is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We know what it's like to be part of a family, right? We're sinful humans. We can be arrogant. We can get annoyed with one another. We can be rude with our family members. We can think, well, if only I was in charge, I would do it this way. We can insist on our own way, our own desires, our own agendas. And the call to us as a blood-bought family is to consider others more important to put our own desires to death and to consider others' desires as more important than our own, to empty ourselves in service to our brothers and sisters, following the example of Jesus himself. And what if someone irritates you? They probably will, right? We've experienced this. What if someone disagrees with you? How dare they, right? What if someone gets, in, gets their way when you should have gotten your way? Humility says, I will not act in spite or harshness or belittling, belittling because Christ did not act that way with me. He went low. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, what kind of example would this be to the world around us in our time and culture? Think about that. Look around. Everyone is insisting on their own agenda, their own special interests, their own ways of doing things. And when someone disagrees with them, canceled. Right? They're completely written off as an entire person. Christians cannot act like that. We just can't. We cannot live like the world in our interactions with one another, even when we disagree. Humility doesn't mean covering over our differences, right? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean not seeking truth. But it does mean that when you differ with someone, when your opinions or interests come into conflict in the church, you're going to handle it like a Christian. You're going to assume the best 
of the other person. You're going to seek full understanding of the situation and of their side. You're going to consider how you might serve that other person and win them in love. Because that's what Christ did for us. Because that's what Christ did for us. He won us with the greatest act of service imaginable. What humility was on display when the God of the universe was nailed to a cross. That's our example. That's our example. Crucify your pride. Love one another in humility. That's different than the world. And the stakes are really high. Look at what Peter says about the proud in verse 5. He says, he, he, he quotes Proverbs 3, he echoes James 4, and he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. My friends, we do not want God to oppose us. That's serious. You want to talk about motivation to be humble toward one another? One another the God of the universe will oppose the proud. So here's, here's an illustration of this right from Scripture. Think about what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. <clears throat> he had a dream about a great prosperous tree being cut down with only a stump remaining in the field. And Daniel interpreted the dream and said, that, dream, that tree, O king, is you. That tree is you, And unless you humble yourself and repent, you will be turned into a beast of the field. And what did King Nebuchadnezzar do? He did not repent. He did not humble himself. And God opposed him. God humiliated him by turning him into a beast. And he ran out into the field. He lived on all fours. He grew hair and claws. He became a beast. That's what it looks like for God to oppose you. You can either clothe yourself with humility or God will humiliate you. You will be humiliated in your pride and that will be much more painful. So instead, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Now, There's a positive motivation here as well, right? He gives grace to the humble. What a beautiful sentence. We're going to skip that for just a minute, but don't think I've forgotten it. We're going to come back to it. But let's move on for now. So, not only are we to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another, but towards God as well. So look at verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If humility is necessary in our important human relationships, right, those those relationships are important, how much more necessary in our most important relationship with the God of the universe? And if we're supposed to defer our own wants and desires and agenda to the people in our lives— How much more are we to submit those things to the ruler of heaven and earth who holds everything in the palm of his hand, the one who declares the end from the beginning, the one who, if he ceases to speak, the universe blinks out of existence. Indeed, there is no room for pride in our relationship with God. 
He always gets his way. He holds all the cards. Nothing happens apart from his will. He does all that he pleases. And that, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It says here, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This hand of God is powerful. It's in complete control. He's sovereign. And this is the same mighty hand that we're told about in Exodus 32, 11. What did this mighty hand of God do? Delivered his people out of slavery. It says, Your people, O God, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. God's mighty hand is a caring, freeing, liberating hand. And his care for his people is mighty. It's under that hand, that caring, liberating hand that we are called to exalt ourselves, to, to humble ourselves and exalt God. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. Look at verse 7. Casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Why would Peter tie casting our anxieties on God with humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand? What's the connection there? He ties them together because casting our anxieties upon God is humbling ourselves under his mighty hand. Think about the things in your life that, are most, that, you, that you get most anxious about. Your fears, your worries. Maybe it's job, family issues, health issues, political or social issues. When we cast them onto God, what are we doing? We're admitting, I can't handle this, right? I'm not in control here. You have to take care of me. You have to be sovereign here because I'm not. You need to take control here because I'm not in control. So Peter is keenly aware that when we cast our anxieties onto God, we're trusting him to care for us, to keep us, to hold us in the, in the palm of his mighty hand. That's what we're doing. Just like he did with Israel from Egypt, we're putting ourselves under his mighty hand for deliverance and comfort and all the things that he promises to be as our good father. That's what we're doing when we cast our anxieties and cares upon God. In other words, when we clothe ourselves in humility, both towards others and towards God himself, we're entrusting our souls to a faithful creator. We're trusting him for the outcome, so that we can lay ourselves down in humility and receive whatever his good, caring, mighty hand will bring. That's what we're doing. So, entrust your souls to God by submitting to the elders, by clothing yourselves in humility to, towards one another and towards God, and then point number three, by resisting the devil with watchful sober-mindedness. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So it's clear who our enemy is, isn't it? It's not one another. Our our enemies are not one another. It's Satan. It's the devil. And Peter does not want us to be ignorant of his schemes. Satan Satan is presented as a man-eating lion, just prowling around the earth, looking for people to destroy and to devour. That's a powerful picture, and that's real. That's real. That's who our enemy is. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the spiritual forces of evil. That's who we're fighting against. So, he says, be alert. Be watchful. Be awake. Be sober-minded. Do not be naive of the devil's schemes. Don't get lulled to sleep in the waves of the world. What this means is that we can't just walk around this world with our eyes closed and our ears plugged, hoping to stumble our way into holiness and faithfulness. That's not going to work. We have an enemy who is roaming around seeking people to destroy So Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be shrewd as snakes. Be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. We live in a culture that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. That's who's ruling right now, this world. And there is so many subtle and not so subtle ways that Satan is seeking to entice and lure and devour and destroy right? So in order that we might be alert and watchful and sober-minded, here's a short list that came to my mind in just about 30 seconds (laughs) of all the ways that Satan is seeking to destroy us. Pervading sexual immorality, the ubiquity and celebration of pornography, political idolatry and division, the denial of authority and moral relativism, Abuse and oppression, slander and harshness outside the church and inside the church. Physical suffering and death, disease, sickness, pain. Cancel culture, the devaluing of human life, increased isolation. And that barely scratches the surface. The devil is prowling around seeking to devour. So, as we are sober-minded and aware of his schemes, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Resist him. Resist the devil and his schemes by standing firm in your faith. I read this verse and I have James 4, 7, and 8 just ringing and echoing in my ear. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So as Christians, we're to stand against evil. We're to stand against suffering. We stand against the brokenness of this world by standing firm in our faith. And he will flee. He will flee because Jesus has won the victory. And notice the second part of verse 9 here. We resist him knowing 
that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's really important to say. Peter is trying, is, is tying the sufferings of the people of God to the schemes of the devil. He's admonishing us as God's children that the devil would love nothing more than in your suffering to lead you away, to cause you to become despondent, to cause you to doubt, to cause you to run towards the false comforts of sin. That's what he wants to do in all of the sufferings of your life in this world. He wants you to grow apathetic, to to forsake God and to turn to empty cisterns that hold no water. He knows Peter knows that we're prone to flee to comfort, to false comfort when we get hurt. So he encourages us. He says, you're not alone. You're not alone. Christians all over the world throughout time have experienced the same kinds of suffering as you have and worse. They've been persecuted like you have. They've been tempted like you have. They've been tried like you have. Everywhere that Jesus is proclaimed, his people are persecuted. Everywhere that the church embodies Jesus Christ, his church suffers. And your suffering and temptation are real and significant and hard, and you're not unique in it. You're not unique in it. That doesn't mean it's not real. That doesn't mean it's not personal. But it means you're not alone in your suffering. There's nothing new under the sun, so be encouraged that there are Christians all over the world that have been persecuted and tested and tried and tempted like you have, and they've stood strong in their faith by the power of Jesus Christ. So resist Satan. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. So, the question becomes, how? How? How do I stand firm in my faith? All of these exhortations, submit to the elders. Be humble. Clothe yourselves in humility. Resist the devil. Those are hard. Those are hard. I don't want to pretend that entrusting our souls to God in these ways is just a walk in the park, right? It's not. It's not. So how do we do it? And that leads us to the application. We stand firm in our faith in light of the promises of God. I don't know if you've noticed but there is a promise of God's faithfulness that is attached to every single one of these exhortations in chapter 5. That's not by accident. That's not by accident. So Peter is showing us that at every step, God is promising to be a faithful creator. He's promising to be the faithful one who will hold you and keep you no matter what life throws your way. Entrust your souls to God, and here are the promises of his faithfulness at every step. So, just consider one more time last week's text. David showed us, elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. How? That's hard. That's hard. 
We do it by trusting verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What a promise. What a promise of absolute faithfulness by our faithful creator. He will appear, and we will receive that unfading crown. He's faithful. He's never failed you, and he never will. And then, you who are younger, submit yourselves under the elders, and all of us humble ourselves under one, toward one another and under the mighty hand of God. How? How? That's hard. We do it because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He promises to be gracious, to give us grace and only grace to show us undeserved, loving compassion and care and love. And he says that at the proper time, verse 6, he will exalt you. That's a promise. He will. Whether in this life or in the life to come, he will lift you up out of your lowly estate and exalt you. He is faithful. He has never broken his promise, and he never will. And then resist the devil in your suffering. Reject his schemes. How? That's hard. Temptations on every side. Sufferings bearing down on our souls. How do we stand firm in our faith? Dave is going to talk about this in great detail next week. Show us everything that this means, but I just want to take a quick peek behind the curtain at verse 10. So, don't tell anyone, but we're going to look at verse 10. Here's the promise. Resist the devil in your suffering. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Does that promise remind you of anything that we've already heard in this book? Yes. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. The end of the book harkens back to the beginning of the book. This is the book end of God's faithful promises to this suffering people. Remember this, chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That will happen. That's coming. He will give us our promised inheritance that is kept for us in heaven. He will bring us home at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith will result in praise and glory and honor. He will strengthen and confirm and establish us, either now or in eternity. He is faithful. He will look at us, every single one of us, and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. He's faithful. He has never failed, and he never will. Friends, God is so faithful to keep every single one of his promises. How can we be sure? Because they've been bought by the precious, precious blood of Jesus Christ. Not one drop of his blood is wasted. 
So in the moment of your deepest suffering, just think about what that is, right? I'll make it personal. In the moment of your deepest suffering, because of the blood of Jesus, he hasn't failed you. He hasn't failed you. He's with you. He's keeping his promises to care and to comfort and to love. And one day he will restore and make everything right. He's faithful. He's never left. So, in light of the promises of God, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. His promises still stand. Great is his faithfulness. He's never failed us, and he never will. Let's pray. Lord, great is your faithfulness. Your promises are glorious, and you keep every single one of them. And so we entrust our souls to you. Help us to submit to authority that you have placed above us for our good. Help us to clothe ourselves in humility. We don't want you to oppose us, God. We want only grace from you, and you promise to give grace to those who are humble. And help us to resist the devil, to not be ignorant of his schemes in the world, but when we suffer to turn to you and to get encouragement that others have gone before us. In all of these things, we're entrusting our souls to the one who holds us in the palm of our hands and under your mighty hand has set us free from sin and death. You are so faithful. Your promises stand. Help us to trust you day by day, moment by moment. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that has secured every single one of those promises by his blood. We turn now to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.